0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The following is a message from Jones Family Farms. Looking for that perfect Christmas tree this season? What about the perfect wine to go with your holiday dinner? Look no further than Jones Family Farm, a 400-acre working farm in Connecticut. Jones Family Farms is as passionate about education as it is about farming. Whether you're picking fresh strawberries or exploring local wines, we hope you're inspired to learn more about Connecticut farming. For more information, visit www.jonesfamilyfarms.com. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to Heritage Radio Network.com.
1: Let's get real on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Erica Wines, your host. I was a total Little House on the Prairie book nerd. Now, not the show. I did watch the show, of course, but it's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the books, the series of seven or so books by Laura Ingalls Wilder. The books were amazing. They were these really vivid descriptive accounts of the struggle to survive, first in the great woods of northern Wisconsin, and then later on the uninhabited western prairie in the 1860s, all seen through the eyes of this little girl, Laura Engels. Did I mention I loved these books? I loved them. I especially loved the descriptions of what was involved in producing and processing food back in Laura's day because survival was a struggle. It was all about food, basically. So in the first book in the series, Little House in the Big Woods, Laura's only about six years old, and this was before they packed up the wagon and headed west. They were living in Wisconsin in the, in the Big Woods, obviously. And I remember this very particularly graphic description where Laura talks about Pa, her father, killing a bear and then slaughtering it as a, Laura and her sister watched in hungry delight. And she was very graphic about how Pa killed the bear and skinned it and slaughtered it and what he did with different parts of it and the paws. and That's the paws, not the paws. And then especially this part where Pa took the bear's tail and roasted it over the fire and then gave it to the girls to have as a snack. And she talked about the hot bear fat dripping down their fingers as they slowly savored this Treat. Yeah, a bear tail. That's what they were eating. It left quite an impression on my eight year old mine, I have to say. I mean, that was a really big deal treat for them, and that never left me. But what made an equally big impression was also the story of what would happen in Wisconsin in the late winter during sugaring season. It's maple country up there when the maple trees. We're ready to be tapped. Pa, you know, it snowed and Pa said it's a sugar snow and a sugar snow is soft snow that you get in the early spring. And it means that it's time to tap the maple trees. So there was this whole description of how the sap would be tapped from the trees and then boiled down in the sugar house. And then they would always be allowed to take some of the brand new hot maple syrup outside and they would drizzle it into the snow. They would take pie pans and pack them with clean, fresh snow and drizzle the syrup into the snow and make little shapes and squiggles and they would write their name. And then it would freeze instantly and it would turn into this frozen maple candy that was this like once a year treat that highlighted, really underscored and highlighted the rareness and the value of sweetness in their diet, since the rest of the syrup would be rationed out all year long because it was so precious or used as a trade commodity for other necessities that they might need. And it was a very sort of rare moment for them of being allowed this indulgence of sweetness because sweetness was really hard to come by back then. And once they moved out west and settled on the prairie, of course, there were no maple trees. And so the remembrances of little bits of sweetness were about things like getting a few little pieces of hard sugar candy in their Christmas stockings and nibbling it really, really slowly to make it last as long as possible. Or how Ma would buy, you know, every time they would go to town, every couple of months, she'd buy a loaf of this unrefined brown, Sugar, this really coarse brown sugar that she'd lock up in the cabinet and only use on special occasions for baking. Or how they would, when they would go on those trips to town, there would be these barrels of candy and these loaves of sparkling white sugar, and it was all so kind of off-limits and special, and it was seen as something really valuable and really precious to be had in, you know, tiny little expensive amounts. I mean, sugar was like the bling of the 1860s. It was sparkly and precious. Precious edibles. And I'm talking about this because, you know, we're right up against Christmas here now, where, you know, it's one of our many completely sugar soaked holidays, like, you know, Christmas candy and candy canes and all the sweets and all the stuff that goes along with the season and then takes us right up into Valentine's Day and then we have a little break and then we slam right into Easter. I mean, sugar is so cheap and so plentiful now that we don't even think of treats as treats anymore. They're just sort of a whole, you know, a part of our lives. So you think back to like Laura on the Prairie back then in the 1860s and those books and me reading those books. And then you flash forward to the early 21st century. Now I'm not reading the Little House books. Now I'm reading an article about a corporate R&D chef who works for IHOP. R&D, research and development. All the corporate food chain restaurants and food corporations have R&D chefs. They're the ones who develop the menu items and then test them out on the hapless public and tasting panels to see how they respond. And then they develop these menu items, scale them up. They basically, you know, figure out how to make them large scale so they can be pre-made and processed and packaged and frozen and shipped so that some poor schmo line cook working at an IHOP somewhere and who knows where has to do as little as possible to make that item taste exactly the same as at every other location. So when you eat at the Olive Garden... In Times Square, you'll have the same exact experience as you'll have when you eat at your Olive Garden back home in Birmingham, Alabama. So this R&D guy in this article, anyway, was talking about how the food corporations are all paying lip service to making their foods healthier and lighter and containing less fat and less salt and less sugar in response to customer requests, But that when he goes and develops new items for IHOP's menus and then tests them out on his consumer panels, the one consistent comment made by the testers is always, make it sweeter. He's quoted in this article as saying that they cannot physically make the food sweet enough for IHOP's customers. More sweet, they say. Sweeter. Sweeter. We may say we want the food to be healthier, but really what we want is for it to be as teeth-achingly sweet as you can possibly cram into a ten hundred million calorie stack of chocolate pancakes. That's what the public really wants. And it's not just for breakfast anymore. Sweetness is everywhere. Now, 150 years later, and this is where we are. We've lost our innocence. Laura Ingalls, who grew up to be Melissa Gilbert, who was once engaged to Rob Lowe and is a Hollywood producer has lost her innocence and now sweetness isn't a treat sweetness is a food group it doesn't matter what meal what time of day sweetness is everywhere it's in our bread it's in our sandwich meats our pizza our pasta sauces salad dressing ketchup yogurt sweeter sweeter more sweet is it food or is it candy or is it the candification of our food Are we all such sugar junkies now that sweetness has jumped its boundary from dessert and from treats and into everything else? It sure looks like it to me, and guess what caused it? You know I would have to say it. Yes, it's foodiness. Now, sugar on its own isn't inherently bad. I don't have a problem with it. And sweetness as a component of flavor, no problem with that. I like sweetness in balance with other food flavors. I like sugar. Not a lot of it, but in small amounts. But if everything we eat is sweetened, people tend to get hooked like drug addicts. It's like a different kind of crystal, but crystal all the same. Sorry, I've been watching Breaking Bad a lot lately. And this one will kill you too, this crystal, just a little more slowly. Now, at least with the other type of crystal, you'll die thin. Bad teeth, though, with both. Being a sugar addict now has become perfectly socially acceptable. Unlike being addicted to other drugs, there's no social stigma. When I was a little kid, there was kind of a stigma. If your kid was a candy junkie or you fed them too much crap, you were sort of perceived as like a bad parent. Now that sugar's become a food group, it's totally okay because we don't really see as much of that sugar. It's just in everything, and it's insidious. So a bowl of frosted flakes for breakfast. Maybe a sweetened industrial peanut butter with industrial jelly on industrial white bread for lunch. Maybe a Gatorade in the afternoon, a Pop-Tart after school. Some frozen chicken nuggets or boxed mac and cheese, or maybe pasta sauce from a jar for dinner. And maybe a few cans of soda along the way during the day. And there's your little addict. 52 teaspoons a day on average. And that's a big pile of completely legal white powder. And with this big pile of white powder, there's no teeth grinding or bankruptcy that follows. So much of the prepared packaged foodiness products that we are bombarded with are either super sweetened or have enough added sugar in them. To make them irresistible, not to mention that sugar is a great preservative and moisture retainer in packaged foods. So it's added to everything. If it's foodiness, it's probably got added sweeteners in it. It's candified. And it's really no wonder. I mean, we like sweet. Humans, the human animal, is programmed to like sweet. The first thing we eat, hopefully, is breast milk. Breast milk is kind of sweet. And that's the first thing we get a taste of. And if it's not that, it's formula, which is sweetened. So it programs us right from the start to seek out sweet. And even before in the wild, in our hunter-gatherer world, and even before that, in our tree-dwelling primate past, sweetness was always an indicator of ripeness. And ripeness meant more sugar and more carbohydrates, which we needed back then for survival because we weren't just sitting in front of a tv all day so we had no energy to waste on unripe fruit we always would seek out the ripe you seek out the red red meant ripe you seek out the ripeness and therefore the sweetness it's programmed into us we can't help it but now our perceptions of sweetness are totally blown out like pete townsend's hearing there's no sensitivity left it's just been blown away and now our food has to scream sweetness to be heard or tasted. So if you remember a couple of weeks ago, I did a show on water and on foodiness drinks. And I mentioned that Arizona iced tea now comes in an extra sweet version. How sweet is extra sweet? The regular Arizona iced tea is very sweet. They should sell each can of Arizona extra sweet with a little bonus syringe of insulin just taped to the side. And it should say on it, new Arizona iced tea, extra sweet, inject before you ingest. The CDC predicts that by 2050, one-third of American adults will have diabetes. Now, that number actually seems low to me, one-third, considering that per capita consumption of caloric sweeteners, that's table sugar and high-fructose corn syrup, increased, increased 43 pounds. Yes, 43 pounds, or 39% between 1959 and 2000. 39% in less than 50 years. In the year 2000, each American consumed an average of 152 pounds of caloric sweeteners. 152 pounds. That's 52 teaspoons a day of added sugar. 52 teaspoons a day per person. And that was in 2000. This is 12 years later. And it's not just the packets you're putting in your coffee. Sugar, including sucrose and corn sweeteners, honey, maple syrup, molasses. I feel bad saying this about honey, but it's true, even though I'm very pro-honey. They're ubiquitous and they're often hidden in our food. In a sense, sugar is the number one food additive, like preservatives and colorings and flavorings and salt and fat. Sugar is the number one food additive. It turns up in some really unlikely places, like I mentioned before, like in pre-made frozen pizza and commercial breads and hot dogs, boxed rice pilaf mixes, canned soup is full of it, crackers, spaghetti sauce, all that stuff I said before, lunch meat, canned vegetables, fruit drinks, mayonnaise, and many brands of peanut butter. And it's not just in our soda, that's the obvious one, which provides more than a fifth of the refined and added sugars in our diet as of 2000, compared with 16% in 1970. It's not just in our soda, it's in everything. Or how about foodiness junk like granola bars? I've talked about these before, the evil granola bars. There's just as much sugar in one serving of a Nature Valley oats and honey granola bar As there is in a bowl of Fruit Loops, then the Fruit Loops actually has more fiber than the Nature Valley Oats and Honey Granola Bar. Who knew that the Fruit Loop eating crowd was eating less sugar than the granola bar eating crowd? Unbelievable. That may be the most excellent example of foodiness that I have yet to come across in my study of foodiness. And a bowl of frosted flakes has more sugar than a Skinny Cow ice cream sandwich. Yep, more sugar than an ice cream sandwich. I eat Skinny Cow ice cream sandwiches, by the way. So we're all literally drinking the foodiness Kool-Aid. And even our booze is sweetened now. I mean, look at all the flavored vodkas on the market, all the cocktail mixes, all the syrups, all the flavored martinis. It makes my teeth hurt kind of just to think about it. I mean... How about just a glass of wine? Now, I am going to be doing a foodiness booze show down the road and talking about how vodka now tastes like candy and what happened to just an olive in your martini. That'll be down the road a piece. So we're kind of becoming like these self-inflicted diabetic addicts. It's like I talked about last week, how pre-prepared food, or a couple weeks ago, actually, in my canned soup show, how pre-prepared food makes us unable to taste and appreciate real food Candified foodiness denies us the pleasure of a naturally sweet apple because it doesn't taste like an apple-flavored gummy bear. So getting us hooked on sweetened foodiness crack means we can't even enjoy real food that's sweet, much less real food that isn't sweet. I mean, I'm sure if you smoke crack, you probably can't really enjoy weed that much. It's sort of the same thing. It's kind of similar. The point is we need to get off the stuff. There's plenty of naturally delicious sweetness in food. We just can't hear it anymore because the foodiness music is playing so loud. It's like the Bieber candy music is so cranked up that we can't just appreciate the sweet, still quietness of something like an apple. And I'm not even going to get into artificial sweeteners today. That's a whole other show. That's a whole other rabbit hole of foodiness that may warrant two shows. I mean, artificial sweeteners are, are more evil than sugar. We know that. Because A, we don't really know what they do to us. And B, it's been proven that artificial sweeteners actually make us crave sugars and carbs more when we ingest them, defeating their purpose. So people who ingest the most artificial sweeteners tend to be the fattest people. Think about that.
0: Now hey, th- Erica. Yes? It's been a while since I've interjected, but okay. I have to say, I quit soda, as I told you. I know. I lost 14 pounds. Oh, my
1: God. You can't afford to lose that, Jack. I know. You're already too thin. But
0: if, if I lost 14 yeah. pounds after quitting soda.
1: There you go. No. See? Testimonial from Jack Inslee, yeah. radio producer. Thanks, Jack. Where was I? Oh, so... People who drink the most artificially sweetened soda tend to be the fattest people. Now, that's a foodiness rabbit rabbit hole that's so deep and twisty and uncomprehensible that those those people may get stuck halfway down that rabbit hole and never get out. Maybe because they're too fat to get out. I mean, think about it. If you went into the rabbit hole thin, but then you try to get out weighing 250 pounds, you won't fit. But I guess you could also be like one of those little kids who falls down the hole or falls into the well and then the whole world watches the heroic rescue efforts. When's the last time you heard of a little kid falling down a hole or falling down a well? I mean, do kids not do that anymore? Maybe they're spending so much time inside they can't find the holes or they can't find the wells or maybe because the kids now are too fat and they don't fit down the holes. So we're going to take a very short break and when we come back, more about the candification of our food. Welcome back to Let's Get Real on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Erica Wise, your host. And we are talking about the candification of our food. The hyper-sweetening of everything we eat, not just desserts anymore. So is this a problem for you? Well, maybe not. If you tend to eat real food and not foodiness, then you're good. But since foodiness is insidious and sneaky, you might not even know how much added sugar you're consuming per day. Or maybe you have a little soda habit that you hide from your kombucha drinking friends. Now, you know there's no such thing as a little crack. Remember Whitney? But just like Whitney, there's hope for you. We can get you clean. You can realistically wean yourself off of sugar like you did off of pot after college. What you have to do is see sugar and sweetness as recreational drugs, not everyday drugs. Like with regular drugs, if you do them every day, it's no longer fun. It's called an addiction. So sweetness should be like a recreational drug. A hit now and then. Not all day in your room listening to the Grateful Dead while everyone is at class. Not to mention the fact that too much pot makes you stupid and it makes you crave sweets. So it's a foodiness feedback loop striking all over again. So let me now suggest to you a basic at-home sweetness rehab program. This is the Let's Get Real Show Foodiness Sweetness Rehab Program. First, eat a grape, not a grape-flavored gummy bear. Now, it may not taste as great at first, but give it a little bit of time. Remember, it's a grape, so it's grape-flavored, but not with grape flavoring. It'll be different, but you'll be okay. Remember, one step at a time. Then maybe drink some seltzer cut with a little juice, not a soda. Now, this definitely won't taste as good at first, and it might take you a while to get used to it. Steps. Remember, one step at a time. Then maybe brew some tea, cool it down, and add your own sugar to taste. Adding your sugar to taste means that you will never add as much sugar as is added to commercially sweetened tea. You just won't. Not only will this help you deal with your withdrawal, but brewing tea makes you look like a much more spiritual person and your friends will be impressed. Then cook some real food for yourself. That's the big step. No matter what, you'll add less sugar to it than the foodiness version of it. Seriously, Try making yourself a meal. Cook a piece of meat, make a burger, something. There's no way that whatever you're cooking will have as much sugar in it and be as sweet as what you'd get anywhere else. And you can actually taste the food. You can be like the Ingalls kids salivating over that bear's tail. And if that's not enlightenment, I don't know what is. And if none of that motivates you, consider this. Do you really want to be worked? by an IHOP R&D executive. I mean, as I always say, if you're going to try and make me drink something, don't make it Kool-Aid, make it champagne. Chocolate pancakes stuffed with cream cheese and topped with canned fruit filling and fake whipped cream are not champagne. Now, it's not going to be easy, but people have kicked much worse drugs. You can do it. Admitting it is the first step. It's my 12-step anti-foodiness program, and I will be your sponsor. I am here for you. But please don't call me at 2 a.m. with white powdered sugar all over your nose. And please don't eat shit. You don't know what that shit's doing to you. We're just about out of time, so thanks for listening. Thanks to Jack for his input on soda, and we'll talk to you soon.